Thanks, Gemma. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is relevant to us today, that we can learn so much from you. And we pray uh, for us now as uh, we just listen out for your voice speaking to us, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a look at the person next to you, maybe both sides, so somebody doesn't feel left out. That is a person, or those are people, who are made in the image of God. Don't you think that's amazing? That person is made in the image of God. Flowing from the core of our very humanity are two aspects of our personhood. Spirituality and sexuality. That's what makes us human. And our spirituality prompts us to seek intimacy with God. And our sexuality to seek intimacy with people. And it's this subject of intimacy which we're going to be exploring just for a few minutes tonight. Now, right at the beginning of this talk, I just want to acknowledge that we'll all be sat here uh, having had different experiences of intimacy. Some of us here might have deep and intimate and life-giving friendships, whilst for some of us here, this is something that we might really long for. And for one reason or another, we've never been able to have intimate friendships or we've had them in the past and we haven't at the moment, and that's a real struggle for us. For others here, we might experience healthy uh, sexual intimacy within the context of a committed relationship, whilst others might not have had that opportunity or might not have chosen to go there, or still others might have experienced destructive or unhealthy sex. And so we need to recognize that we're all coming to this subject of intimacy with different stories and from different places tonight. And so this evening, we're going to be exploring how we can develop intimacy with others as God intended it to be in the context of this rather sex-obsessed world that we live in. So first, a definition, a definition from Elaine Storkey, who is a theologian, sociologist, and a writer. And she says this, intimacy is the sharing of closeness, of bonding, of reciprocation. It's the engulfing of warmth and care. It's the experiencing of another. Just look at some of those words, closeness, bonding, reciprocation, warmth and care experiencing of another. That is what intimacy is. And maybe at this moment, you're thinking of an intimate relationship that you've had or have at the moment where those words ring true for you. Maybe you're sat there thinking, wow, that's like alien to me. I've never had that in my life. That's what intimacy is. And those words might also feel a million miles away from the way that we use intimacy or people around us use the word intimacy in our world today. Phrases like, you know, I got intimate with last weekend or, you know, I had a really intimate moment with so-and-so. We know we need people. 
And yet the need within us for intimacy has been confused so often and distorted by this popular view of sex seen in the phrases like, I got intimate with. So we're going to start by putting this whole idea of intimacy within the context of the garden in the story that Gemma just read to us from Genesis 3. In the Garden of Eden, God had created a beautiful world where everything was good. He created man in his image. But God said it was not good for man to be alone. And so woman was created. And as Dave reminded us last week, in our very being, in our creation, humanity was created to be in an intimate relationship with God and to be an in intimate, committed relationship with another person. That is to be sexual and spiritual. We're built for connection and commitment for intimacy. But early doors in the story of humanity, things started to go wrong. You see, God had said to people, all this is yours, all this creation, everything, the flowers and the trees and the birds and the animals, everything belongs to you. You, They're yours to enjoy, to share intimacy with, to fashion, to nurture, everything. But don't go and eat from that one tree over there. But somewhere along the way, that thing happened. That thing that's so familiar to all of us here. We see something or someone and it's pleasing to the eye. And we want it and so we go and we get it. It could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be a material possession, it could be a person. That thing within us that goes, oh, just look at that. You know, I know, I know we're not meant to go there. I know we're not meant to eat that or do that. But what harm can it really do? Surely it can't cause me that much damage. Surely, uh, even though I'm not meant to go there, it can't be that bad because it's so good. And that's exactly the story of Eden. Humanity saw something that was pleasing to the eye. They decided they knew best. They were tempted. They couldn't hold back. And so they ate from that tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the process, something went wrong. The beauty and the wonder of the relationship, the intimacy between God and people and person to person was distorted and sin entered the world. And so instead of being naked and delighting in each other's bodies, the people were ashamed and they made clothes and they covered themselves. And instead of being together and rejoicing in their togetherness, they were embarrassed and they were guilty. And instead of enjoying with friendship with with God, they hid and they were ashamed of what they'd done. And instead of rejoicing and supporting in each other, the man and the woman blamed each other. And the wonder of intimacy was broken and lost. The expression of intimacy was broken. And yet, the need for intimacy within each one of us was and is still there. So, where are we now? We have this need, and yet we live in this broken world. So, on the one hand, we can be in a place of isolation, 
And on the other hand, we can be in a place, a world which is over-sexualized. So we're in this situation where we desire intimacy, but often, not always, we look in the wrong places for this need for intimacy to be met. So on the one hand, um, people may go out trying to fulfill their need for intimacy in the wrong place through inappropriate or destructive sexual relationships. And on the other end of the spectrum, some folk, maybe us here tonight, are scared of intimacy, believing that it would be better to do life on our own, out of relationships, so we end up isolating ourselves. We think it's better to isolate ourselves. We batten down the hatches. We keep other people at arm's length. Someone once put it like this. We live with the crumbs of the memories of how it once was. We don't readily fit together. We're like porcupines who want to huddle together but are fearful of doing so because of the hurt that they will cause each other. If we focus on the isolation end of the spectrum for a moment... I wonder if these sorts of experiences feel familiar to any of us here tonight. Maybe we've been hurt in the past, and so we avoid intimacy or we isolate ourselves from other people, building a sort of protective shield around ourselves. And this can happen whether you're single or you're married or you're in some form of relationship. We're afraid to take risks or make ourselves vulnerable with other people. Perhaps we feel guilty or insecure. Maybe we doubt other people's motives in relationships, so we isolate ourselves. Maybe we resent other people's seemingly successful relationships. Maybe we don't trust ourselves or other people. And so we build a wall around ourselves to keep other people out. And this self-imposed isolation can be quite a destructive and unhappy place to be because we're living outside God's design for us to be in a loving relationship with him and with other people. And so maybe this is an area some of us here need to deal with tonight. And yet, on the other hand, the over-sexualization of our culture has had an even more rampant, profound effect on humanity than perhaps our isolation. One chocolate manufacturer tried to cut down on the surreptitious eating of chocolate in his factory, um, far from banning eating chocolate, but actually encouraging uh, his employees to eat chocolate. Uh, What he said to people was, if you work in my factory, you can eat as much as you like. And for the first couple of weeks, he found that his employees gorged themselves on chocolate uh, to the point of almost making themselves sick. It sounds quite heavenly to me, but anyway. um, But as the months passed, they found that the chocolate uh, changed from being like a forbidden temptation or a, a supreme pleasure that they'd had before to something actually quite boring and mundane, and it was just freely available. It was just there. It became an area of indifference for his employees. And isn't this the tragedy of what our culture has done with intimacy? It's made it all about sex, and it's become sometimes freely available, sometimes cheapened, to the point where, to be honest, 
It can get a bit boring, can't it? And the stats back up this viewpoint too. Uh, I had a really good read of the British Sex Survey of 2014. A fascinating read, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> but it tells us some interesting things. It tells us that our confidence in our own ability in sex has declined. 61% uh, of Britons even believe it's possible to maintain a happy relationship without having sex, a married relationship without having sex. And 17% of those in marriages admitted to being unfaithful to their partner at least once. Uh, and they're looking for something more in life. 37% of those who are in a sexual relationship say that they're not satisfied with their sex life. It's just a bit boring. Adam and Eve had all the riches and the wisdom and the goodness of God right there. They hung out with the creator of the universe who loved them and who they loved back. And yet when they saw something that was pleasing to the eye, they wanted more. It wasn't enough. But they went looking in the wrong place. St. Augustine says that sin is looking for the right thing in the wrong place. As people created for relational intimacy, we're looking sometimes in the wrong place for that intimate connection. We're looking for it so often, well our culture is, not necessarily us personally, in that no strings attached casual sex, or in titillation, or in a string of monogamous sexual relationships. In fact, the stats tell us that 29% of Britons today have jumped into bed with someone without even knowing their name. How can that be an expression of intimacy, of closeness, of bonding, reciprocation, warmth and care, those words that we heard in that definition of in intimacy at the beginning? But our culture is also crying out for intimacy but we've dragged the beauty of intimacy out into the streets. We've cheapened it. We've made it a product to be bought. We've made it all about no strings attached sex. And for many, the beauty and the intimacy of sexual intimacy has been lost or distorted. On the other hand, Western culture has also elevated sex to the position of a God whom we should live for and has sold it as the ultimate expression of intimate connection, the only means by which we can receive or give or express deep intimate love. Uh, a guy called Al Sue says this, in such a society, people exist as solitary, isolated individuals, much like atoms or molecules bouncing off each other, competing for resources and position. And the church, it's all a bit depressing, isn't it? But it's going to get better, don't worry. The church is perhaps as much to blame for this distortion of intimacy in our world as is secular Western culture. If we take it back to the first few hundred years of the church, we can see how the idea of the mind and spirituality were elevated above anything bodily. Anything bodily became associated with sin and sex and intimacy were the ultimate expressions, therefore, of sin. Uh, you might have heard about Gnosticism or know about Gnosticism. And the effect of Gnosticism in the first few centuries of the church is really striking. Gnosticism 
is the belief that the mind and the spirit were superior to the body and the flesh. And in some extremes of Gnosticism, uh, it was taught that anything physical was evil and corrupt. You even found some uh, groups of Gnostic Christians practicing extreme asceticism where they denied the flesh in any form of pleasure whatsoever. And even though we perhaps wouldn't put it in these terms today, there is still a remnant of Gnostic theology affecting the church's view on sex and intimacy. And the church went through period, different periods of teaching on sexuality, spirituality, and sin. For example, a guy called Clement of Alexandria, who was around in the third century, uh, taught that sex was fine for procreation, but other than that, all sexuality was evil. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, monasticism replaced martyrdom as the highest calling on a Christian's life, which was great because Christians were no longer being used as torches to light Nero's garden or being used as fodder for lions. But one of the results of monasticism became, uh, as monasticism became the new thing, was that celibacy was promoted as the highest spiritual state a Christian could achieve. And there proceeded from that a revulsion against all things sexual and bodily. Intimacy of any sort was seen as repulsive and sinful. It can feel then like we're drowning in this mire of centuries of social, cultural and religious feeling about intimacy. And so how can we today, as 21st century Christians, reclaim intimacy as God designed it to be? Let's grab hold of some Christian truth now. So firstly, intimacy is physical as well as emotional and spiritual. God created us as embodied humans. We do not have bodies, we are bodies. We cannot divorce the physical from the spiritual. And Christ himself was the embodiment of love in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Intimacy is grounded in the body. It's to do with the whole person. Love God and love others, not just with your mind, but with your whole person, including your physical body. In the Genesis account, when God created us, he declared that we were very good, including our bodies. And the Bible is packed full of bodily expressions of intimacy, from the command in Genesis for humanity to be fruitful and and increase in number. And even though I used to think that you prayed and got a baby, let me tell you, that's not what happens. It is bodily and physical to the delight that the writer expresses in Song of Songs of his lover's body. Have a good read of that if you want something really (laughs) raunchy. Intimacy is physical and it is good and it is God's design for humanity. And so what is a godly expression of intimacy? In this world where, on the one hand, sex has been the expression of intimacy, or on the other, isolation and individualism has protected those afraid of intimacy, 
Christians need to go beyond that usual rhetoric and need to reclaim intimacy and, this, and the realm of sexual expression or individual isolation and put it back in its rightful place. During my 20s, I spent some periods of time in relationships with blokes and other times where I was happily or frustratedly single. And I went on a bit of a personal and theological journey of discovering regarding sexuality and intimacy. Like many of us here, I had a real desire to know and to be known, to share relationship and to share life, to give and to receive physical affection. And I think that's what's behind our desire for intimacy. And it felt to me as though the world was saying, yes, you desire intimacy, and this desire is fulfilled by sex. That is where you need your your need for intimacy will be met. But how did that work if I was a Christian? I believe that sex was to be kept for the commitment of a married relationship, and I wasn't married until my late 20s. So how did that work? Where did I get my needs? Where do I get my needs for intimacy met? Maybe feelings and experiences common to many of us here. And then about how about when you are married and you're having sex? How is intimacy part of your relationship with your spouse outside the bedroom? Or what about creating intimacy in, in other friendships and relationships? How are we supposed to love our neighbors intimately? It's a bit weird. I discovered that the biblical idea of intimacy is based on relationship, mutuality, boundaries, commitment, values, and most of all, love. And these need to be key features of both our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, whether that's friendships or romantic relationships. Mutuality, boundaries, commitment, values, and love. We need to acknowledge and claim the truth that the need for intimacy is a much stronger need within us than a need for sex. I'll just say that again. We need to acknowledge and claim the truth that the need for intimacy is a much stronger need within us than that for sex. Yet these two needs are often confused, and that's what can lead to frustration, loneliness, or hurt, both in marriages and in other relationships with people. The need for intimacy is at the heart of our sexuality and our humanity. And yes, sex itself is a very deep and real expression of intimacy. But this is the good news, folks. It's not the only way that our need for intimacy is met. And so in my own process of thought back in my 20s, I looked to Jesus. After all, he was human. Uh, He was human as we are uh, and as sexual as we are, therefore. And so I was thinking, you know, he must have had a desire for intimacy. He was built as much as you and I are for relationship with God and relationship with other humans. And yet we can be pretty sure that Jesus hadn't had sex. And so as I looked at Jesus and I read the Gospels, I discovered that in Jesus's relationships, we see a quality of intimacy expressed and experienced that are key for experiencing real intimacy in our relationships with God and our relationships with friends or family, or our relationships with a romantic partner. 
So I'll just whiz through a few of the things uh, uh, that I discovered. So firstly, self-acceptance. I think self-acceptance is key here. If you know and accept yourself as a beloved child of God, as somebody who is forgiven, who is redeemed, who is free, who is loved, I think you're able to reveal your true self to others and therefore reach a level of intimacy. It's about being safe enough in who you truly are to be able to take those masks off and allow others to see you as you. Self-acceptance. Then the next thing is vulnerability. In taking off your masks to make your real self visible, inevitably that'll, that'll involve some risk. Making yourself vulnerable, it can, you can enjoy then true intimacy and love. In the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, Isaiah proclaims this, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, but the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. God's love is demonstrated powerfully and profoundly through the vulnerability of Jesus. By his wounds we are healed. And then other-centeredness. In a society which promotes an ideology of personal achievement, of individuality, of fulfilling my own fantasies, my need for pleasure, materialism, vanity, and self-obsession. <clears throat> Other-centeredness is a far cry from what many experience in their version of intimacy. I'm sure that many of you know about the various apps and websites around that connect people for the sole purpose of having sex with each other. In August last year, Vanity Fair, uh, the magazine, ran an article about one of the, these websites, and it contained some pretty shocking quotes, uh, like that from Marty, who uh, was a, or is an investment banker uh, from Manhattan, who claims to be, have been racking up girls, sleeping, sleeping with 30 to 40 in the last year. He says this, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over. But then he says, they start wanting me to care more, and I just don't. The reporter said that none of the guys she spoke to wanted a relationship with the women they were meeting. And one bloke, Nick, said, I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. You can't be selfish in a relationship. It feels good to just do what I want to do. Jesus gave love, but he gave of himself and of his time to his friends. His whole purpose for being was for others. Love one another as I have loved you. We read in John 15, 12, an expression of other-centeredness. Intimacy is all about giving of yourself to the other. It's not about what you can get in return. Jesus' kingdom teaching is all about the other. Love your enemies, love God, love your neighbor as, your, as yourself in a place where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In our busy lives, we need to make space for others, for intimacy. In our relationships, we need to be countercultural and be other-centered. 
And next, touch. Physical expression is a key feature of intimacy between people. From the subtle touch of a hand between friends, or the cuddle of a parent and child, to sexual intercourse. But so often our needs for physical touch are not being met, and we confuse them with that physical, uh, for physical intimacy with sex. We find a number of times in the Gospels Jesus touching or being touched. We see the intimacy he has with his friends. In John 13, the disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning against Jesus. In Luke 7, the sinful woman shows her love by caressing and touching Jesus' feet, and that is fine. Or we see how touch can lead to healing when Jesus touches the blind man's eyes or the woman touches Jesus' cloak and is healed. But what constitutes appropriate levels of touch varies um, greatly depending on culture uh, and social and personal background. To, to one person, a hug from a friend may seem like a complete invasion of privacy of their personal, personal space. To another... That hug may be interpreted as an expression of feelings deeper than friendship, and it's all slightly awkward. And to another, it may just simply be a physical gesture of warmth and closeness and a gesture of intimacy of that friendship. It's something that you've got to be aware of and be careful with. With some of my friends, um, we, you know, we're really happy to snuggle up on the sofa together, drinking our glass of fizz and eating Maltesers. But with others, I know that if I snuggled up on the sofa with them, that would make them feel really, really uncomfortable. Even in a sexual relationship, in a married relationship, it's important to make touch a part of your relationship apart from sex. And I'm going to be really sexist here, but men... Your wives, they need to experience physical affection that doesn't always lead to sex. It's important to share intimacy with each other, not just sexual intimacy. A key thing there for you, touch. And last but not least, solitude. Now, this might appear a bit odd uh, that we're talking about solitude when we're talking about intimacy. But the most important relationship that Jesus had was with his father. Jesus sought solitude in the busyness of his life, in, in and amongst the relationships with all these other people that he was hanging around with. He sought solitude with God, intimacy with his heavenly father. And this is harder for some people to do than others. But in finding space and disciplining ourselves to be and stay in that space, we can achieve intimacy with God. And as a result, a deeper wholeness and a deeper intimacy in our relationships with other people. So self-acceptance, vulnerability, other-centeredness, touch, solitude. Lastly, I want to leave us with some words from our passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, which I think are really helpful uh, for us here in the, when we're thinking about sex relationships and intimacy. It says this, His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him 
who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The reason I think these words are really important is this. God has not left you and me unequipped without the resources to live as sexual and spiritual people in this world today. He has given us everything we need. He has given us his divine power, the same power that caused Jesus to do miracles. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and in me. And so this power will help us to live out the choices that we make. To either, as it says in 2 Peter, participate in the divine power or to join in with the corruption of the world. And it's sometimes a tough road to walk. But by living in the divine nature, we will enjoy a deeper intimacy with God and a closer and more life-giving intimacy with those people that we share this life with.